Articles of Faith is a weekly interview show featuring scholars and writers who have written about the doctrines and teachings of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Articles of Faith is a production of Fair Mormon and is hosted by Nick Galetti. Rick Anderson is Associate Dean for Scholarly Resources and Collections in the J. Willard Marriott Library at the University of Utah. He earned his bachelor's and master's in library and information sciences at Brigham Young University. He serves on numerous editorial and advisory boards and is a regular contributor to the Scholarly Kitchen blog and to the library's journal, Academic Newswire. In 2005, Rick was identified by Library Journal as a mover and shaker, one of the 50 people shaping the future of libraries. In 2008, he was elected president of the North American Serials Interest Group and was named an ARL Research Library Leadership Fellow for 2009 and 2010. In 2013, Rick received the Harasowitz Leadership in Library Acquisitions Award. He was invited to give the Gould Distinguished Lecture on Technology and the Quality of Life at the University of Utah. Welcome the man who makes being a librarian cool, Rick Anderson. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I don't know, I don't think I know anybody, at least on paper, who appears to be as into libraries than, than you. <laughs> Are you like are you like the poster child for librarians, or how, how would you describe what you do? Um, there, there, there are a lot of librarians who would who would uh, dispute that characterization. <laughs> I, I no, I'm I love libraries. I, I, I love my job. I love my career. Um, I've I've worked in libraries for 26 years. I've been a professional librarian since uh, 1993, and. Um, I've worked. Uh, I worked for an academic bookseller initially after graduate school, and and since then I've worked in uh, three different uh, university libraries in various uh, capacities. And um, being at the Marriott Library at the U of U is just wonderful. It's it's like uh, it's like I feel like I go to work in a candy store every day. You know, <laughs> I'm just surrounded by wonderful people and 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 fun and exciting. You, you know, it's it's. It's hard when you're a librarian and people say, well, yeah, but what do you do? It can be really hard to communicate how fun and exciting it is yeah. well, <laughs> to, to a normal person, I guess. Absolutely. Well, normal. <laughs> Let's put that in air quotes. So if librarians had an Olympics, would you be like Mark Spitz? No, no. Uh, I would be, I would be, I'd probably, I would I'd have a 50-50 chance of being one of the people who made the Olympic team. But I would <laughs> okay. not I would very it would be very unlikely that I'd be on the medal stand. Okay. But you definitely you, clearly from your bio you 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 love libraries, you love books and therefore and to some degree you you love learning. Yeah, I love and and really what librarianship is increasingly about is uh not not so much managing books, but it's about scholarly communication generally. Um, and as you can imagine, given the changes in the information environment over the last uh, 10, 15, 20 years, an awful lot about what it means to be a librarian is changing in really fundamental ways. Sure. Thinking about that and about what that portends for our future is one of the things that I find really exciting and stimulating. Well, there's, so, there's some that might even think that libraries are going to start fading away. Yeah. And, and you know, it our, as a profession, we have kind of a knee-jerk reaction when people say that. But I think that we need to be very careful not – we need to be very careful that we take that possibility seriously, um, especially, I think, in academic libraries where an awful lot of our uh, – a lot of our fundamental roles and our, and our most basic 
and, and time-honored practices are, in fact, being obviated by a radically different information environment. Public libraries are operating in a completely different sphere, and I don't, I don't see public libraries disappearing, you know, in the foreseeable future. I don't see academic libraries disappearing in the foreseeable future. But I do worry that if we are not, if we don't pay close enough attention to the changes that are happening and the implications of those changes, we do run the risk of um, not participating in the transformation of research libraries because instead we're insisting on not letting them transform. Well, is this an ap- uh, an appropriate comparison? Just because people have a home kitchen doesn't mean restaurants are going away. Yeah. Well, no, actually, because because um, restaurants restaurants provide a completely different experience. You don't you don't I, I don't think people generally, unless they're unbelievably wealthy, go to a restaurant because they're hungry. They go to okay. a restaurant because they want a particular dining experience. If they just okay. wanted to satisfy their hunger, they could do it very easily and simply at home. Libraries historically have satisfied hunger that couldn't be satisfied anywhere else. Okay. In the old days, if you woke up and you, the example I always use is if you know if you were wondering what dates do the dolphins migrate past Santa Barbara every year, in 1980, if you woke up with that question in your mind, you had two choices. You could either go to a library and maybe find an answer, depending on how good a library you lived right. close to, or you just went without the answer. And and in ninety nine percent of the cases, we just went we we just went without the answer. We <laughs> like, we went through our days and we said, "Huh, I guess I'll never know." You know, and 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 now that hunger, that hunger for knowledge, whether it's for well, especially if it's hunger for a particular discrete piece of information, we can all satisfy that m- most of us in the very moment that we have the question. I mean, my kids have no concept of a world in which a factual question can't be answered by your phone. Right. Um, and and it used to be that libraries played a big role in satisfying that kind of hunger. They really don't play that role anymore. Um, and so in, in academic libraries in the world where I work, we, we continue to, to perform a very, very important role as a broker of access to information that the faculty and students that we serve can't afford to buy on their own. So Marriott Library, like most research libraries, provides access to tens of thousands of scholarly journals online. Um, scores of thousands of ebooks, as well as our three million printed books that are in our physical collection. Okay. Um, you, you, it's not being able. You, you don't have access to that kind of stuff at your home, no matter how good a researcher you are. And and so that role continues to be important. I see that role at least dramatically changing, and and to some degree already fading, mm. because there's an awful lot of high quality information that can be easily found using Google or Wikipedia. Uh, and, and, but, but there are still, um, there are still significant populations of, uh, scholarly information that are fenced off that you can't get access to unless you pay. And the library is a way of pooling community resources to pay that fee so that everybody in the community can get access. And there are other things that, uh, research libraries are doing increasingly now working in, and open access uh, on open access uh, projects where uh, we're trying to figure out ways to make content freely available to everybody. Um, an awful lot of sort of educational stuff, helping the faculty teach the students how to use high quality resources. And, and the library, at least our library, continues to provide very, very high demand, 
high-quality workspace for scholarship. And that, that remains a really core uh, service that we provide. We have over a million people come through the doors every year to come yeah. in and use our spaces. And so we work really hard to make sure that those spaces are inviting and conducive to the work that needs to be done and that we have people around those spaces who can provide the kind of support and help that's needed. You know, and considering the topic of the article that you wrote for The Interpreter, which we'll get into in a little bit, the pursuit of information, it seems as if that perhaps with so much access to so many resources that the discipline that was developed in having to use a library to discover information has slipped. Yeah, and that's something we struggle with as librarians because teaching that discipline was a big part of our our value proposition to our communities. And isn't it still though to a certain extent? Well, that's, you know, that's the that's the controversial question is to what degree is it is it appropriate for us to um to try to teach people how to use the library and to what degree is it really our purpose to to fix the library so that you don't have to be taught how to use it? Right. And, and of course, there's going to be a balance. Uh, to, to some degree, there are things about the library that we can make more user-friendly. And to the degree, uh, my philosophy is that to the degree that we can do that, we should. There are some things that it's hard at this point to make user-friendly. And so at that, that, those are the things where we need to be making ourselves available to train people. One of the problems with, with a model based on teaching people how to use the library is that in my library, we've got 45 librarians serving 34,000 people. Uh, 32,000 students and 2,000 faculty, that doesn't scale. Mm. A, a model of librarianship based on teaching people how to use the library doesn't work. Um, now, that was the model that we were stuck with during the print era because there was no way to really make the library more user-friendly when the library is 3 million printed was. books. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there are so many more options available to us now and uh, for making it more user-friendly. And there are some librarians... Who and these are the ones who wouldn't want me on the Olympic team. <laughs> there, there are some who who feel that, despite the fact that we can make it easier to use, um, making it easier to use is in some ways undermining the educational mission of our institution. I, I want, I don't want research and scholarship, and and academic pursuit to be easy for our students. I want them to be challenged. I want them to be stretched. At the end of a day of scholarly work, I want them to be exhausted because they were working so hard with their brains. But I, what I want, I want that experience to come from the documents that they're working with, not from the process of getting to the documents. Gotcha. And historically, the the library has been it it's been hard to use because it had to be hard to use and so you know if you had three hours carved out for study, it was not unusual at all to spend an hour and a half of that time just getting your documents together and there were certain things that you might learn in the process of getting them together and there was certainly some value in that, but to me it's kind of like it's like the value that comes from chopping wood out in the fresh air you know you're exercising your muscles you're out in the fresh air but really what you're trying to do is build a fire. And if, and if I can have the wood already chopped and waiting for you when you get to the campsite, <laughs> to me, that, that is a better, that's better than saying, and you also get the, you get the valuable experience of chopping your own wood. Yeah. To some degree, we can chop the wood for them and should. That is, that's my view. You know, it sounds to me like the math teacher who used to say, no, you, you can't use your calculator because you've got to learn how to do it step by step. And it, 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 in some respects, it doesn't become just about finding an answer, but learning the process. And, and so I, I jump with that to the idea of your article, which 
was uh, in the interpreter and was entitled Mormonism and Intellectual Freedom. Of course, we're, we're discussing this idea of how much rationale can be applied to faith and, and the pursuit of information, the pursuit of knowledge. And that's a challenge that a lot of people are facing in this internet world where they're trying to find answers about perhaps certain teachings, certain historical events. And it almost seems it's in some ways that people are coming to a calculator conclusion and they're missing the in-between of gaining that knowledge, chopping the wood, as you put it, <laughs> simply because what that process gives you is an understanding of where the information fits and how you use the information that you've come to. Yeah, an awful lot comes to you out of, out of context, for one thing, um, and, and, and it comes very quickly and easily, and, it's, and it can be very difficult to make an informed judgment about the source. Yeah. I would assume that especially considering your many accolades and accomplishments professionally that you spend a great deal of time around people, some of the brightest minds in their fields, and to a certain extent your field, of course, too. But as a library management professional, you have to know a good bit of information about a lot of subjects. I've, I've even heard these people referred to as intellectual polygamists. <laughs> um, but with that, we don't being, use that one very much in the Marriott yeah, library. It's not a very popular one. <laughs> it fits better in Utah. Uh, with that being said, the genesis of your article, Mormonism and Intellectual Freedom, came from a friend approaching you uh, in, in what almost appears now to kind of be an ironic assumption. Could you flesh out that story a little bit? Yeah. So, so this was a, a friend that I had actually lost touch with years ago. Uh, he, he and I were, were had become we had sort of reconnected on Facebook, but hadn't really caught up much. And, um, and he, he sent me this message through Facebook out of the blue. And, and, you know, like I described in the essay, he basically said, um, he, he had, he had come across, I, I, I also have an essay, uh, in, on the Mormon scholars testify website. That's in some ways kind of similar to the one I wrote for the interpreter. Um, and he had come across that and, um, and he said, you know, um, I read your essay and, and, uh, you know, I, I had talked about, I had talked about the process of gaining a testimony of the gospel and, and, and of, um, my experiences, uh, with what I believe to be, uh, the promptings of the Holy Ghost, um, testifying of the truthfulness of, of the church. And it, it, it's always seemed to me like one of the, one of the rational responses to somebody who says, well, I just feel the the church is true and I feel good when I go to church is, is to say, well, how do you know that those feelings that you're having are anything other than emotion? And you could feel good going to church because you went to church as a little kid and you have happy memories. I don't know how many little kids really have happy memories of church, but some do. yeah, some do. Um, and you know, there, there are any number of, of explanations for that kind of emotional response. And one of the things that I addressed in the Mormon Scholars Testify essay was why what I feel to be a very clear distinction between when I have emotional responses to things and when I am experiencing uh, spiritual promptings, that that when when I'm feeling the influence of the Holy Ghost, it's not it's not a somatic chemical physical reaction. And, and I just, and I went into some detail to talk about that because I know that that's an issue in a lot of minds. He, he cited that in his message to me and said, um, he said, you know, I'm, I'm just writing to let you know that those good feelings that you talked about, they're available out here in the world. You know, they're available in the clubs where I hang out with my friends. They're available in all kinds of other contexts other than the church. 
and you don't have to, you know, you don't have to stay shackled up in your, in your Mormon straitjacket in order to have those feelings. <laughs> and not only are those feelings available outside of the context you're talking about, but also um, they, they come with another thing that's even better, and that is intellectual freedom. And that was that comment was what really got me thinking over the course of the next year. I mean, I started writing this essay probably a year ago, and I started thinking about, you know, why is it? Because he wasn't talking about nothing that he had said in his message had anything to do with what you are able to think about or talk about or ask questions about as a member of the church. It was it was all about lifestyle, and then he said, oh, and also intellectual freedom, and. The more I thought about that, the more this sort of three-part idea came to me, which I laid out in the interpreter essay, So, where I was trying to answer for myself the question, why would somebody look at Mormonism and believe that it, that it creates a constriction on intellectual freedom? And I, and I came up with three possible explanations. Yeah, let's, and, go, let's go into those. All right, so the, the, the first one that I— uh, postulate is the one that that I think is has the most face validity as a theory, and that is the fact that there is indeed a correlation system in the church. Mm-hmm. That that the things that the church teaches as true are in fact centrally defined and determined and distributed down a hierarchy to the congregations. Now it's not you know it's not like there's this constant churn of new doctrines being distributed, but but we. You know, in my ward in Centerville, we don't just come up with our own doctrine. Right. You know, if there's a doctrinal question, we appeal to the scriptures and the manuals and the leadership of the church to resolve that question. We don't just come up with an answer ourselves. So, so certainly what counts as true doctrine is constrained. I mean, it's not a free-for-all out there. And it is, and I think it's reasonable for somebody outside the church to look at that and say, well, there you go. That is a constraint on intellectual freedom. Um, now, I think that that, although that view is understandable, I think that it's fundamentally wrong. And the reason that I think it's fundamentally wrong is that, is that in fact, as a member of the church, you can you can kind of believe anything you want. You can no, think whatever. You can, yeah, you really can. And and like I said, you know, in the essay, you could believe that the church should be doing things very differently than it is. You could believe that the Book of Mormon is a hoax. You could believe that um, we ought to be praying to our Heavenly Mother. Nobody is going to call you on those beliefs. Nobody is going to ask you – nobody's going to interrogate your beliefs, at least not, you know, not to that level – and actually, if you don't, if you don't go, if you never go in for a temple recommend interview, nobody's ever going to quiz you about your beliefs in right. any official capacity. Um, and if you do go in for a temple recommend interview, you're going to be asked about your beliefs at only the the highest conceptual level. Do you have a testimony of Joseph Smith? Do you have a testimony of the gospel? Do you support the prophet and the and the twelve apostles? Beyond that, nobody nobody ever really interrogates your beliefs. Where where you start running into trouble is if you start promulgating beliefs that are contrary to what the church teaches. And if, when church authorities come to you and say, eh, you can't teach that in Sunday school, or we notice you wrote this book that argues that Joseph Smith was a, a fraud, let's talk about that. 
when, if you set yourself up in opposition to what the church teaches, then, then there starts to become the possibility of the church disassociating itself from you. But you, you. also give reason as to why that's actually a valid position. Because I know, like, a lot of people will look at excommunication or disfellowshipment of people that ask these questions or, or put out these tracts, if you will, that that is a valid course for the church to take. Why is that a valid course? I, I think it's a valid course because the church— the church is more than just a, a social club. It's more than just people who are trying to do good in the world, getting together in a structured way and meeting every week and trying to figure out how better to do good in the world. The church is that. But the church also claims to have divine authority and to be a repository of sacred truth. Really, what 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 a lot of these questions, I think, boil down to is, is it okay for the church to claim divine authority— and to claim to be a repository of sacred truth. If it's not okay for the church to do that, then nobody should ever be excommunicated. If it is okay for the church to do that, then you've got to come up with a solution to the problem of what if a member of the church starts undermining those, those claims? I, I don't think it would be appropriate in any way, and I, and I know for a fact Joseph Smith would have not only would have agreed with this, but taught this very specifically in section 134 of the DNC, or he said, no church has the authority to muzzle anybody or to throw anybody in jail or to, or to confiscate anybody's property. However, the church should have the right to determine who is and who is not going to be a member in good standing. And that's, that's something that we would allow any organization to do. When a church does it, it tends to make us more uptight. You know, it's, it, like I said in the essay, I, I, I can no more expect— the LDS church to allow me to teach what it holds to be false doctrine in a Sunday school class, then I could expect people for the ethical treatment of animals to let me give away free bacon in their meetings. It really is the same thing. It's somebody doing what that organization believes is wrong, not just incorrect, but morally wrong, teaching falsehood or distributing bacon. <laughs> you, you don't know it's right. You, you can certainly do that. You, can, you have every right to go out and distribute free bacon Anywhere you want, but but I don't have to give you a forum for that. And right. and really, that's what that's what happens. That's what happens when the church says, "Okay, you can't be a member of this church anymore as long as you insist on publishing or teaching or saying these things publicly." And to a certain extent, people will ask the question, "Why would you want to?" Yeah, and and I think that's I, I think that's a good question, but I think it to some degree it's beside the point. I mean, one one response to so let's say somebody says, "Well, I've been excommunicated for the church from from the church, and it's because I dared to speak about this troublesome issue in Mormon history." One one answer to that might be, "Well, if you find that issue so troublesome, so troublesome that it requires you to." say things publicly that undermine the truth the claims of the church, then then why would you want to be a member? I, I think that's kind of a that's kind of a side issue because the the bigger issue is to what degree is it okay for the church to maintain doctrinal boundaries? But to the core of your article, it doesn't yeah. change your intellectual freedom. No, you still you you can still think whatever you, you want. You can think you can certainly think whatever you want, and and this is this is one of the things that that I I really get impatient with is, <laughs> you know, when people say, oh, so and so is being persecuted for what he believes, no, or, or for asking questions. Yeah, I I, I find that baffling, and and it's and it's because 
I'm, I'm 48 years old. I've been a member of the church my whole life. I've, I've lived all over the country, been in wards uh, all over the country. Never, I can't think of a single time that I have heard anything other than encouragement to investigate questions, ask questions, express concerns, and even to express doubts. I've never, I've never heard of or seen, and that doesn't mean it hasn't happened. I mean, I'm just talking from my own experience, but I've never heard of or seen anybody being in any way sanctioned for, for harboring doubts or for asking questions. Where people have gotten into trouble, in my experience, is not from harboring questions or doubts, but from actively preaching against <laughs> against the church and against the things that the church teaches. It's a different to, it's different to have a question about something and be seeking for an answer. A doubt tends to be in my opinion and this could be just fighting over words but a doubt tends to be I disagree with your conclusion. Yeah, or it's or sometimes it's not even about it's not even about a logical proposition, it's just about a fact. You know, the church is built on truth claims about events in history. You might not have a logical problem with a doctrine, but you might be struggling with the idea of the Book of Mormon being an actual historical record of real people who actually lived, you know, a, th- a thousand to two thousand years ago. It, it's completely understandable why somebody would have doubts about that. I mean, there are a lot of a lot of the the events that our truth claims describe sound. They're fantastic. They they sound kind of crazy. And and we've got to we've got to recognize that if we're going to help people who are struggling with doubts. And I mean, I completely understand why my colleagues who are not LDS and 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 many of whom are not religious in any way would look at the things that I believe and go, "Well, that's that's just wackiness." Yeah. I can totally understand that. Well, I, I, I guess let's let's move on to the second one, and and to a certain extent, as we're going through this, it is interesting to note that in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints is that we believe not just that we have an omnipotent God, an all knowing God, but that we can become like Him. Right. With that being said, it seems almost ironic that people claim that we are the ones restricting intellectual knowledge, when in fact our quest is all knowledge. Right. Yeah, that's true. And so, so it does seem kind of like a difficult thing, but you have your second, your, your second uh, idea that, that kind of moves into that. So the second kind of possible explanation that, I, that occurred to me was, well, I think that there are a lot of people who look at the behavioral constraints that we impose on ourselves as members of the church, and they, they conflate those behavioral constraints with intellectual constraint. So, you know, the fact that I don't drink alcohol, the fact that I, that I don't engage in uh, extramarital sex. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of, there's that great t-shirt that I love that says, I can't, I'm Mormon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and there, there are, there's a fair number of things that we, you know, air quotes, can't do as Mormons. I would say that there are things that we choose not to do. My kids can't. Sure. I choose not to. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, I think, that, I think that when we see a behavioral constraint that we don't like, that we don't think is, is appropriate. Like, let's say, that, let's say that you think, well, it's crazy that you would not, uh, that, that you would refrain from uh, sex outside of marriage. I mean, once you're married, sure, everybody should stay faithful to their partner. But the idea that you shouldn't have a, a, a broad 
romantic and sexual experience before marriage is crazy. I can understand somebody looking that looking at that not being able to come up with a great argument against that restriction and then saying, well, you know what? You're restricting your experience. You're not going to grow intellectually. That Maybe that's an extreme example. But I think that there really is sometimes a confusion between, uh, between experiential behavioral constraint and intellectual constraint. We'll give an example because we, we often do teach that we are here in this life to experience things so that we can learn. So the concept isn't foreign that experience breeds intelligence. No, absolutely. But how is that being perhaps twisted? Well, I think, I think there's the, the idea uh, uh, among some observers that all kinds of experience are, are valuable for the knowledge that they produce Mm -hmm. or, or at least that, or maybe that, that the, the knowledge produced by the experience is necessarily necessarily balances well with the cost of the experience, you know? And I think most people would look at somebody who has, you know, descended into meth addiction and say, well, maybe that person's experience wasn't worth the knowledge that it created. If you don't go that far down the spectrum, I think there are a lot of people who, who look at, who think that it's, it's important to have all kinds of experiences for the knowledge that they generate. And I, I guess I would argue that one of the blessings of living the gospel is that it helps you avoid um, experiences that end up costing a hundred times more than the value of the knowledge that they that they generate, and and the cost of a particular experience is not the same for every person. But I think that I think that as we talk about as we talk about why we as members of the church submit ourselves to a particular spiritual discipline, I guess. It, it's important for us to be clear on what it is that we're giving up and what we're trading for it. And I think that we are often we're often put in positions where where the that that sacrifice that we're making makes no sense whatsoever to the person that we're talking to. And I think it's important for us as members of the church to be able to explain why it actually, Makes sense. I, you know, I, when I was on my mission, we we were invited into this this guy's house. This was in Luxembourg, but th- these guys were Italian, and and they had they had wine and cheese and bread in the kitchen, and they brought us in and sat down, and we talked. And they kept trying to get us to drink the this wine, and we'd say, no, no, we don't drink wine. The concept of somebody who doesn't drink wine was clearly completely baffling to them. Right, and they kept saying, but it's very good wine. We made it ourselves. It's exceptionally good wine. They, they thought it was you, about taste. Yeah, they thought it was about, oh, you don't like wine or you're not sure that it's going to be good. And we kept trying to explain to them, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's exceptional wine and I'm sure I would enjoy it if I drank it. But here's the deal. <laughs> I don't believe that it would be right for me to drink the wine. And, and you know, that if they were a little less drunk, that could have led into a conversation <laughs> about why we believe that. But instead, it ended up just being kind of a, pleasant conversation and then we left but um but i think that sometimes that's that's a, a not a bad analogy for the way the world thinks about an awful lot of the things that we as members of the church put aside but it's such good wine but it tastes so good you know um yeah and and i and i will probably never know what wine tastes like and that is something that i that is something that will that is a piece of knowledge that i will never have what I gain in exchange for that sacrifice to me 
seems so much more valuable. Well, and typically when you have these types of conversations, and I think to a certain extent, most people have had those conversations, especially about drinking and, and why don't you drink and those sorts of things. But ultimately what it comes down to is sometimes you just run across someone who it's not just you don't drink wine, it's you are so foolish. Yeah, exactly. For, it, it becomes yeah. this condescending idea, which brings us to your third uh, your third kind of look at this issue is the condescension that sometimes happens between intellectualism and spirituality. Yeah, and that so the, those these three possible explanations kind of step down in terms of how they reflect on the person who harbors them. So, cor- <laughs> so the the correlation issue, I can totally see how a, 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 a an intelligent person of goodwill would look at the correlation system and say that is intellectually constraining. I think it's mistaken, but I can easily see how somebody could come to that. I can also completely understand, though I think it's a little less defensible, how how people would confuse or conflate uh, behavioral constraint with intellectual constraint. The condescension as an explanation for this attitude is a less – reflects less well on the person who holds it in my mind. And that's the condescension that says only an idiot would believe the things that you believe. Only an idiot would – I mean the, the, the restrictions that you place on yourself in terms of what you, what you, what you believe and what you do – reflect poorly on your intelligence and your willingness to inquire. If you believe these things, it's because you haven't exercised your mind. That's the condescending uh, viewpoint. And, and the thing that I find so troubling about it, just from, an, just from a purely intellectual standpoint, is that it, it typically, in my, in my experience, not always, but it typically arises from a naturalistic worldview one that that says uh, a materialist worldview one that says look the only thing that exists uh, the only things that exist are the things that can be physically uh sensed and measured and 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 touched and discovered now we haven't discovered all of those things yet but the only things that there are to discover are things that we can interrogate uh, according to physical and scientific principles um that and i'm i'm by no means the first person to make this argument but that is a faith position it is a position that says it, that that places perfect faith in the ability of our our senses and of machinery that we create to detect all that exists the the, the things that we can't see right yeah. right and 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 it's a position that says well sure there are things that we can't detect now but they are detectable given the right uh given the right advancements in science and you know we can build theoretically they could be detected by instruments that could be created um whereas the the religious viewpoint typically not always because there are religions that don't there there are materialist and uh, there are materialist and naturalist religions but um religions that that draw a distinction between the natural order and the supernatural order posit that there is in fact a a world of truly existing things that is outside of the capabilities of of the human mind and human created instruments to detect that also is a faith position. We can't we can't empirically prove 
that that world exists. There, there are people who would say that idea is so fundamentally crazy that it shouldn't even be considered. Well, I and millions and millions of other people obviously disagree. Um, but I think that if, if, you look at, if you look at what can be justified purely in intellectual terms, you can't justify atheism in intellectual terms. You can't prove that there's no God. You can't justify religious belief in purely intellectual terms because you're never going to prove in, in, a, in a repeatable, you know, empirical way that there is a God, probably. So, so what can be intellectually justified ultimately is agnosticism. Anything beyond agnosticism, beyond the position that, well, we just don't really know, anything beyond that is going to be a faith proposition. So whether it's beyond agnosticism in the direction of atheism or beyond agnosticism in the direction of religious belief, you're getting in, on either end of that spectrum, you're in, you're in the territories of faith. And so when atheists look at religious believers and condescend to them on the basis of, um, of their intellectual, you know, fatuity or whatever. It's like I said in the essay. It's the condescension of one faith position towards another faith faith position because the latter is a faith position, and that is intellectually incoherent. And so ultimately, the pursuit of knowledge in any form, whether it be academic or religious, is an act of faith, as you said. Now, right now in this discourse that we're seeing online. There's uh, the quest for dovetailing intellectual pursuits in a spiritual and religious context. We're, we're still kind of growing into how we approach rational faith, in a sense. And at the same time, lines are being drawn in the sand. So what then is the role of scholarship in religious endeavors? Oh, gosh, that's a big question. I think, you know, I think the term rational faith is... It's not self-contradictory, but I think it's, I mean, certainly— It's assumptive. Yeah, I mean, certainly my faith is informed by reason, and certainly the the evidences that, that buttress my faith— I, I don't believe that reason is just this thing that we made up. Uh, it, it's not just a set of arbitrary rules. It really clearly, t- to me, reason seems to be a fundamental— uh, sort of structural building block of 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 the universe. Things that things that things that can't happen tend not to happen. <laughs> mm. You know, things that are mutually exclusive tend not to coexist. I mean, there's mm. just reason is incredibly important. It, but it and this is and this is a principle that I that I try really hard to teach my kids is you know the principle of of um, necessity versus sufficiency. We have to have reason. Reason is not sufficient. Reason is not enough to to bring us to bring us back to our heavenly Father. However, without reason, we can't we can't think about the gospel. We can't apply gospel principles in our lives. We can't move from the the, the promptings the promptings of the Spirit to to applications in our lives of the things that we learn from those promptings. Um, reason infuses everything that that we do. But it's like air, you know, air is necessary for life. It's not sufficient for life. And to me, that's, that's kind of what reason is like. So it's, like not, it's not so much a matter of rational faith, at, you know, as distinct from irrational faith. It's a matter of, you know, keeping carts and horses in the proper, in the proper order. One of the greatest realizations of my adult life was that at a certain point, 
my faith in my heavenly father and in the church is going to have to be a choice. I am never going to be compelled to belief by, by the evidence unless I, you know, sometimes I think back to the story of the Book of Mormon of, of Laman and Lemuel and an angel coming to them and saying, knock it off. And they go, oh, okay, okay, we'll knock it off until the angel's gone. And within two or three days, they're back to what they were doing before. And I think right. all of us re read that and we go, oh, you stupid, stupid men. How could you do that? <laughs> An angel came to you, you know, and said, do this, and you then didn't do it. If I had an angel come to me, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I would do everything that he told me, and I would never stray from the instructions I was giving, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's baloney. It's baloney. We will all, no, no matter what kind of evidence we get, we are all going to have to choose. Um, and and that, that realization was very liberating for me. It took... Because I've always been interested in evidence for the uh, evidence for the restoration, and I've always, you know, I've read all the Nibley and um, and and all the great farm stuff, and I love that stuff, and I still love it. But there was a period in my life when I think I was hoping that when I turned that next page, I would find that one piece of evidence that would let me relax, you know, yeah. that would let me say, "Okay, whew, I, I got it now, got it now," you know, <laughs> um, and and I finally realized. Not only is that not going to happen, I would I think that I would be worse off if that happened. I think that it's better for me to always be always be a little bit poking and and searching and 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 always always have the pressure of do I really believe this? Am I really committed to this? I I think it I think it keeps me sharp to some degree spiritually. And and I know that there are people to whom these these questions never occur and they go through their whole lives and they just accept, um, the, the truthfulness of the gospel. And, and I think that that's, you know, I think that's fine too. Um, and there are people who encounter these issues and, and come up with these questions and are unable to reconcile them. And, and, um, for me, I feel like I've, like I've found a balance that works. Excellent. Well, with that being said, uh, again, we'll, we'll look back to and refer people to the article in the Mormon interpreter, uh, at mormoninterpreter.com. The article is by Rick Anderson, and the article is entitled Mormonism and Intellectual Freedom. I, I very much enjoyed your article and our conversation, so thank you very much for coming in. Thanks. Me too, Nick. Thank you for listening to this episode of Articles of Faith with your host, Nick Galetti. This has been a production of Fair Mormon. This and other podcasts are available at fairmormon.org. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please subscribe to our show in iTunes. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org. Tune in each Monday for another episode of Articles of Faith. Thank you for listening.